137th parallel on America's haunted highway, it's Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and the strange. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Pixelated Paranormal, episode 190. I am Sean, and with me as always is Preston. What's up, everybody? And Big Steven. Hello there. The VHS collector extraordinaire. Indeed. (laughs) (laughs) There's nothing better than a good VHS horror movie. The case art is always bomb. It looks cool on the shelf. Mm -hmm. And if you open it up and if it has a little yellow sticker that says, be kind, rewind, it just makes you feel that much better about your life. <laughs> Man, look at you that. Know it's true. Nostalgia trip. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I was actually at uh, Josie's in Kansas City uh, last weekend looking at records, and they didn't have much of anything for soundtracks, which, I mean, again, it's very niche. I understand that. But they did have the Ghoulies soundtrack, which was like on a hot pink bubblegum vinyl. And on the outside, on the cover, it did have a sticker that said... Can you tell everybody out there what the Ghoulies is? Because some people are probably going to know that cheesy issue. Oh, it's very much what you just said. It is a very cheesy <laughs> rubber puppet horror movie from the 80s where uh, these people move into this old mansion and they find out that the main guy is like a descendant of some devil worshiper and he summons these little things called Ghoulies, which are tiny little rubber puppet monsters that show up to do the bidding of whoever summons them and the vinyl soundtrack on the outside cover had two stickers and one of them said like horror in yellow I think Mm -hmm. and the other one said something to the tune of like rewinding after you're finished watching or something like that it was pretty cool yeah didn't the ghoulies they didn't they come out of the toilet too yeah, you had different ghoulies. They tried really hard to have like a cat ghoulie and a uh, bat ghoulie and a fish ghoulie. That variation. Yeah, the <laughs> fish ghoulie, I believe it was, was the one that I think is famously coming out of the toilet. I'd have to double check and make sure I'm right on that. But can you imagine if they remade the ghoulies? <sighs> no, I can't. <laughs> That's what made that movie charming. That movie and also Troll. And some of those other, you know, just rubber puppet monster movies were just so, I don't know, charming because of how crappy they were. Right. <clears throat> yeah, it really, it blurs that uh, uncanny valley really well of this is so cheesy, it's almost creepy, and it's so creepy, it's almost cheesy. Heck yeah. Well, our intentions were to do our cryptid encounter on this episode. However, I've been stuck working overtime the last two days, and I haven't quite polished up that document. But that's okay, because we oftentimes have backup shows ready in the wings, so to speak. And Stephen, you didn't join us on the last episode. Mm. Preston and I were just kind of recalibrating audio. Did you listen to that show yet? I have not. Well, there was a news story on there, and it was talking about this hiker recently who was in California, and he was hiking in the mountains, I believe, north of L.A., and he managed to get lost. And it's presumed that because of the forest fires up there, um, a lot of the signs that would give you directions uh, were burnt down. Mm-hmm. And so he ends up kind of getting stuck um, near this ledge on this mountain, and his cell phone, of course, is dying, and he can't figure out where the hell he is, so... 
he sends out two photos, one of his feet dangling over the edge of this, you know, cliff, and then another one just kind of of the mountainside that he's looking at. And he texts his friend and says, you know, I may not make it out of this alive, and if I don't make it out, just want to let you guys know I love you, blah, blah, blah. Well, the actual uh, L.A. Sheriff's Department gets a hold of the photos, and they send out a message to the public saying, if anybody has any idea where this guy might be, please just help us locate this guy. Well, there is an internet sleuth whose favorite hobby is to take a photo off, you know, find a photo online and then try to geographically locate it via the internet, you know, through Google camera or Google earth and all those yeah. different kind of programs. Dude finds the hiker. Oh. He pretty much pinpoints it to like a five mile radius contacts. The, uh, LA sheriff's department and says, I'm pretty sure the guy you're looking for is going to be right around here. And sure as shit, they jump in a helicopter, fly over. There he is. And he's, you know, he's not like dying as they find him, but he's, you know, brink, pretty worse for brink, wear. Yeah, yeah wow. he said that, you know, he's, he's running out of food. Uh, it's super cold up there because, of course, it's in the mountains and California weird like that. <laughs> <laughs> right? But any hoozle, it was a happy ending to a missing persons case. Cool. And that caused me to pull up some old, you know, missing 411 missing persons cases that I've had uh, in the random repository dock. And so I figure if you guys are up for it, let's just jump into three more tales of missing people, unless you guys have something better planned. Take me for a spin, baby. Take me for a spin. Mm, I'm going to do it. I'm gonna do like it a record, baby. Right round. <laughs> like a record. Let's just jump in, shall we, to the eerie vanishing and then reappearance of one Catherine Van Arst. So we talk about a lot of missing 411 cases where people disappear for whatever reason. Uh, lots of strange circumstances. And one of the weirdest things of all is the disappearance of children who not only disappear, but then who later reappear mysteriously. That's going to be the case of our first story. Now, located in Washington County near West Fork, Arkansas, in the U.S. of A., is the Devil's Den State Park. Devil's Den State Park is roughly a 2,500-acre wilderness area that is a magnet for people to go, you know, touristy hiking and, you know, spending day trips there. People go there in all sorts of manners, hiking, camping, horseback riding, biking, all sorts of stuff. And a lot of people go there just simply to see the sandstone caves, the bluffs and the ravines, the rock shelters, the crevices, you know, just the beauty of the Devil's Den. Well, the area is popular because it's a destination for families looking to enjoy the great outdoors. And this is the case in 1946 with the Van Arst family, who made their way there for a fun family trip to do just that, hiking, biking, seeing the sights. Well, one day, when the family was near their campsite, eight-year-old Catherine Van Alst was playing in a creek in her bathing suit as her brothers fished. At some point during the fishing trip, Catherine must have wandered off and seemingly just vanished. Now her dad came back and her brothers, you told them what happened, and apparently they'd been right near her the whole time. They could hear her splashing in the water and playing and just having a lot of fun, and all of a sudden it just went quiet. They turned around, and she simply had vanished. The family had assumed she'd just gone off for a bit, and she'd return to the campsite any minute. And back in the 40s, that's what we did. We said, oh, they must have wandered off. They'll be right back. 
<laughs> that's not what happened. <laughs> ah, the 40s and 50s. So they weren't really alarmed at that point that, you know, little Catherine had wandered off. They just assumed she was out just running amok and nothing to worry about. So they kind of searched around as the night drew nearer in the woods and, you know, nearby campsites, but there was no sign of her at all. So then the family became panicked towards nightfall and contacted the park officials, who drummed up a large-scale search for the little girl. Now, searchers launched a very in-depth, meticulous search of the entire area for several square miles. And every moment that they looked for her and every moment that went by was critical because this little girl was only wearing a bathing suit and she was actually barefoot. Hardly the kind of clothing you would expect anyone to be able to wear to survive out in the woods. Well, the search went on for five days with no sign of little Catherine. The family is growing nervous, the searchers are growing weary, and they just have no idea what the outcome is going to be. On the sixth day, though, during one point of the search, volunteers had passed by a cave. As they walked by, they glanced over. And little Catherine was just standing there, dazed and confused, lackadaisically waving at them. Listening to Led Zeppelin. According, <laughs> right. <laughs> According to those who were there in the search party, she was extremely spookily calm, almost in a daze when she simply uttered the phrase, Here I am. The fuck you are. <laughs> it's creepy. <laughs> right. But what made it even more bizarre was that they had already searched that spot uh, countless times. It was what they call seven air miles away and 600 feet higher than the place where she had originally disappeared. So if you can imagine an eight-year-old just walking for seven, seven miles over the course of five days, uh, that's insane. Also having to climb at least 600 feet higher in altitude than where she was. Outside of being gone, she was otherwise in pretty good shape. But the most bizarre thing about this eight-year-old girl is they estimated she had actually not walked seven miles, but instead a zigzag path of over 30 miles from where she was to where she was found. Because the terrain was so treacherous and she was just in her bathing suit with no shoes on, they couldn't figure out how she could have got there because the area is riddled with thick forests, rocky terrain, and, you know, steep hills. So one of the most perplexing things about her disappearance is how she could have managed to cover that distance in six days on such a challenging, rocky terrain without any shoes on. Now, when they found her, they said her feet were swollen and she had been covered with insect bites and scratches from the briar patches and thorns and leaves and sticks. So it was apparent that she had done some wandering of her own. But otherwise, she didn't seem to be in any more of a poor condition which you would have expected her to be in, being that young and being by herself for that long. She also seemed to be in such good shape because the cave she was in just happened to have a freshwater spring. And despite various cuts and bruises, she wasn't really much worse for wear, all things considered. Oddly, another oddity about the place where she was found... Is like I said earlier, they already had searched by there, including using aircraft and tracker dogs twice without seeing any trace of her being in the area. So why had she just suddenly appeared there and been so remarkably calm after, you know, what we would assume to be a very terrifying experience for a child? Now, according to our, you know, favorite person, David Politis, the author of Missing 411, 
There's other oddities that lie in this case. When police actually spoke to the girl, allegedly, she said she couldn't really remember much of the six days that she'd been missing. She really only said that she had gotten by by eating berries to stay alive, and that sooner or later she found herself in the cave. Now, David Politis mentions that the area was overgrown with many types of poisonous berries, too. So the fact that this little girl could randomly just choose berries often enough to never be poisoned for the course of six days is really just unbelievable. She also explained that when she had gone missing, she was simply unable to find her campsite or her father or her brothers, despite being right near them. She said that on several occasions, she shouted out to people she could see searching for her, but apparently nobody was able to hear her. She also says that when she saw tracker dogs looking for her, she knew they were searching for her, but she was too afraid of the dogs to make any noises or approach the searchers. So according to David Politis, she also made the strange mention of how she slept in warm grass on the first night she was missing, but didn't really elaborate any more into what she meant by that. So all kinds of weird clues have fired up about, you know, a lot of speculation as to what really happened to Catherine. Lots of sensational things have been said, like maybe Bigfoots or fairies or other entities may have led her away, all the way to UFOs, possibly aliens abducting the young girl for six days and then dropping her off beside the cave. But, seemingly enough, these strange clues and the fact that a little girl in a swimsuit was found six days after disappearing in the wilderness is enough to keep this case making its rounds over and over and over. No one seems to really agree on what the right answer is to what had taken her away, but we can all agree this is a happy ending because the girl was actually found. Which isn't always the case. And I looked for more information from David Politis himself on Missing 411. I'm sorry, in Missing 411, the devil is in the details. And it doesn't really bring up her case, but it does have other cases about the devil's den in Arkansas. And apparently there's a lot of folks that go missing around that area. And not just the Devil's Den, but any other place, any mountain ranges, any parks that have the word devil, apparently oftentimes are associated with missing people. Ooh, the devil. So when you yeah, when you bring that up, the um, there are other cultures like in um, Africa, like the witch doctors. Mm-hmm. So they have a practice that they you know, somehow come across an entity or capture an entity and they put it in like, let's say like a, like a wooden statue. And that's kind of what gives the power its tribe. So then, you know, the, uh, witch doctor's job is to, you know, give the, the, the statue or the idol, um, you know, like offerings, like food and things like that. And they say a lot of times that whatever the name of the deity that's in that idol ends up being the name of the region or the name of the the village, because any area associated with that name kind of adds to the paranormal power or it gives uh, that entity influence over the people living in that area. So if there was a town named Satan and Satan's a real mm-hmm. you know entity that anybody who lived in the town, Satan, would be under his influence or that influence of that entity. 
So uh, a lot of your missing 411, like it's ironic that you brought that up because maybe there's like a, an entity that's in that area that's associated with the self because of not only past names from like Native American villages, but the names that we've given it as well. Wow, that's fascinating. Almost like a tulpa. Huh. Yeah. So the next story is the mysterious wilderness vanishing of Jacob Gray. On April 5th, 2017, a 22-year-old by the name of Jacob Gray left his house in Leftport Townsend, Washington, to go on a bike ride. Now, he rode a pretty sturdy bike. Behind him, he actually towed a trailer full of all sorts of camping gear and survival gear needed to get by on the upcoming upcoming journey that he had planned, which would be a cross-country trip from Washington all the way to Vermont, where his brother lived stationed there with the U.S. Coast Guard. Unfortunately, he would never arrive and thus would mark the beginning of a strange unsolved disappearance surrounding itself by bizarre clues. The story begins when on that day, the day that he left for his trip, a woman came across his bicycle along with a trailer on the side of a walking path in Seoul Duke Hot Springs Road in the Daniel J. Evans Wilderness in Olympic National Park in Washington. Sweet Christmas! What a fucking mouthful. That is a word salad. <laughs> so, on a path somewhat off the road in the brush, the bicycle laid, but still being visible by anybody passing by. She immediately recognized the bicycle because she'd seen the young man Jacob riding it only two hours before. She didn't see any sign of anybody there, and she mentioned it to the rangers in the area. She found it kind of bizarre and wanted to make a report. The rangers came by and found the bike, but they left it alone, and the bike stayed there for the entire day. So in the following morning, when the rangers came back by, they saw the bike was undisturbed still and decided to make a report. During the investigation, they found out that the bike belonged to a Jacob Gray, based on the list of phone numbers and names in a notebook they found in the trailer. The trailer, with all its gear, seemed to have been abandoned there, with no sign of Jacob nearby. Yet there were signs that he had tried to set up a camp of some kind near the bicycle. They found a tarp laid out on the ground, which you would typically put your tent on, and miscellaneous camping equipment laid out beside it. But Jacob seemed to have suddenly left in a hurry before he could fully set up the camp. But one bizarre detail that the rangers found was that four arrows had been stuck into the ground in an east-to-west line, but nobody could figure out why he would have wanted to do that or what the line of arrows signified. Now, a look at the bike showed it to be totally functional. No flat tires, no damage, or any other reason why Jacob wouldn't want to continue riding it along his path. So the rangers wondered where did he go, but nobody really found any clues. A quick search of the area showed no trace of where Jacob could have gone. There were no signs of struggles or animal attacks or anything else strange to be found in the area, nor in the river nearby. And oddly, none of his gear had been brought with him so authorities were beginning to think perhaps he wandered off to go exploring and maybe just got lost. But why would you leave in the middle of setting up a camp? And why had the arrows been stuck in the ground in that bizarre straight line? So Jacob's family was contacted, and it turns out 
that oddly enough, like we warned you guys last time in last episode, Jacob didn't tell anybody where he was going. The only person he had told about the trip was just his brother. But his brother said what was bizarre is the path where his bike was found was actually going the opposite direction of which he would have taken, of the path he would have taken to get to Vermont. So he had no reason to visit this park because it was going to be because it was in the complete opposite direction of where he should have gone. A larger search effort was launched using tracker dogs and dozens of volunteers and search and rescue personnel, but it didn't get underway until several days after Jacob had gone missing, which was kind of a bizarre fact to his family. So on April 12th, they found tracks that suggested that the missing man at some point had switched from hiking boots to running shoes for some unknown reason, and there were also signs that somebody may have fallen into a river in the form of scuff marks along the mossy rock, as well as signs that somebody may have tried to exit the water further downstream. So rangers and searchers followed this new lead, which sparked an intense search of all the log jams in the area for a 12-mile stretch downstream. They used cadaver dogs, but no sign of a body was ever found. Jacob's dad, Randy, even personally put on a wetsuit and dove into the icy water of the river to search the bottom, but they never discovered any body. So on April 15th, there would be one more promising clue when a pair of shorts were found a few miles downstream, but it was unknown if they had belonged to Jacob or why they would have been removed in the first place. At this point, the main theory was Jacob had accidentally slipped and fallen into the river, but with no body, no one could be sure. As this was going on, there were flyers distributed around the region, but these turned into no hits, and when there was no further sign of Jacob Gray, the search, unfortunately, was scaled back and dried up almost entirely, with only the missing man's family continuing the tireless trek to find their son. But again, they'd never go on to find anything. Another search would go on and be carried out, but not until 2018 in August. On August 10, 2018, some Olympic National Park employees had found an abandoned camping site near Ho Lake. Later that day, unfortunately, a macabre discovery would be made when some biologists were in the area studying marmots when they stumbled across a treeless ridge above the lake and 5,300 feet above sea level. At this site, they discovered clothing, camping gear, a wallet, and a human skeletal remain that would go on to be identified as the body of missing Jacob Gray. The discovery would answer the question of Jacob's ultimate fate, but also would leave even more questions unanswered. One question was that the body was found 15 miles from the abandoned bike, well off the nearest, nearest trail, and at a much higher altitude, through rugged terrain, which was more at the time of the disappearance, it would have been well within the snow line and covered with snow. So why would he have wanted to venture out there of all places, especially without any of his gear? Also strange is that the remains were found with plenty of food and were dressed warmly. So how did Jacob die? In the Callum County Coroner's Office would not be able to find any clear cause of death 
ultimately deeming Jacob to have simply died from inconclusive forces. There's numerous oddities surrounding the case and lingering unanswered questions. First of all, why didn't Jacob tell anybody besides his brother where he was going? Why did he head out west instead of east like he planned? Was he in the Daniel J. Evans Wilderness in Olympic National Park for any other reason? Why had he left his camp in the middle of setting it up, and what was the meaning of those arrows stuck in the ground on that weird straight line? And indeed, why had he chosen that spot along the road as a campsite in the first place, and why did he dump his bike and all his camping gear? Why did he head up towards the snow line when the natural instinct for anybody, when lost, is to head downhill instead? Why would he have wandered off trail in the first place to make his way up that lonely treeless ridge? And why change his shoes to sneakers? And the final question would be, why and how did Jacob die? And I've read other reports on this actual case of Jacob Gray, and they said that searchers were up in that area once before where he had actually been found, which adds, you know, just furthering questions as again to... Why was he found at a higher elevation, and why was he found in a place that had already been searched? Still strange. And Steve, it's kind of like that story we talked about a few episodes back about that girl who had gone swimming um, off in that little area and then got lost in the underground tunnels to be <laughs> found, you know, three days later um, in the storm drain. Do you remember that story? Yeah. Oh, what's yeah. That? It's like Preston said. Just tell people where you're going. If you're going to go exploring, you know, away from other people, just tell them where you go. Tell them why. Tell them when. Yep. Leave a trail, man. Leave a paper trail. Yep. Or a trail of candy like Hansel and Gretel. Or Elliot to E.T. Booyah. Oh, man. I almost, almost got the E.T. score from Josie's uh, in Kansas City, but it was beat the fuck. Ooh. It was pretty rough looking, so I passed on it. And then the quality. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you know, my 2001 and my uh, Close Encounters, you know, they're used and pretty worn, but this E.T. looked pretty screwed up. So our last tale of the night is a story about a family. This is the undiscovered, I'm sorry, this is the unsolved mystery of the vanishing of the Solomon family of California. For all appearances, the Solomons were a normal suburban family. They were immigrants from Israel. The father, 35-year-old Sol Solomon, his wife, their 9-year-old son Mitchell, and Elaine, a 15-year-old daughter from Sol's wife's former marriage, who all lived in Northridge, California, where Sol worked as a fire extinguisher repairman and refiller. They were by all accounts a content, normal, perfectly happy family, well-adjusted, and on October 12, 1982, the day started off just as any ordinary day, just like this ordinary family. They spent the day visiting with Elaine's parents, and then around 6 p.m., Sol casually told everybody he was going to go off to a car auction with a business associate by the name of Harvey Raider, and abruptly left. Now, there's nothing unusual about this at the time, Elaine's parents hung out until about 10.30 p.m., and then Elaine made a phone call to a friend. Her friend said during the phone call she had to go because Mr. Raider had appeared at the door. Her friend said she hung the phone up, thus being the last time anybody heard from any 
of the Solomon family. And from this point on, the entire Solomon family seemingly disappeared off the face of the earth, launching one of the most bizarre and strange mysteries to have never been solved. The next day, on the 13th, neighbors noticed that the Solomon's pool had begun to overflow and water was seeping into nearby neighboring yards. Uh-oh. Uh-huh. People went to the house and to the door, but the door was locked. The interior was dark, and in the driveway sat Sol's fancy, shiny, burgundy-colored Rolls-Royce and his work van. <laughs> but his Mercedes-Benz was gone. And looking over the fence, the neighbors saw in the backyard was the family dog, just casually lounging around as he did. But it soon became clear that nobody had seen any of the Solomons the entire day. Elaine herself had not shown up to work as a volunteer counselor at a clinic, and the kids Mitchell and Michelle had both not been seen in school that day. So the feeling began to draw on that something was not quite right, and soon rumors began to spread as it was obvious that no one had heard from them since the phone call the night before as Mr. Rader had approached the house. It was at this time when the police were finally called in. And you can see a photo, if you're following along here, of the Solomon family. When authorities arrived at the scene, they did so to a house that was otherwise normal. Things were quiet, the lights were off, and there's nothing seemingly out of place. The door was locked, the burglar alarm had also not been activated, and there was no sign of any break-ins. So police let themselves in and looked around, showing nothing in the home out of order. No signs of struggles, and nothing seemed to be amiss. Everything looked like, basically, the family would, family would be returning home any minute. In the bedrooms, however, all the beds were found to be neatly made and tidy, which Elaine's mother said later would actually be something that was kind of bizarre, because normally the family, including the kids, never made their beds. Otherwise, it seemed like a normal house, until they reached Michelle's bedroom. Here, there were some bizarre clues, and the fact that pillowcases, sheets, and the bedspread were all missing from the bed, and police discovered a small blood spattering on the bedroom wall, a little on the mattress, and an oddly shaped piece of carpet that had seemingly been cut away from the floor and then covered with the bathroom rug. In the backyard, it was found that water seemed to have been set to flow out of the pool on purpose. And they also found a baseball bat near the wet bar. This family seems like they kind of had a pretty nice place. Yeah. Rolls Royce, Mercedes. Metal bat, pool. It was a normal family who had everything. Wet bar. <laughs> yeah. God, mm -hmm. I wish I had a wet bar. Dog in the backyard, am I right? Yeah. Bathroom Fuck. rugs. Damn, bathroom rugs, that's upscale living. <laughs> right? This is all quite unusual, but police were still not treating this as anything foul for lack of evidence of anything dastardly that had gone on. A few days later, on October 17th, we're now about five days past the last time anybody saw the Solomons, more clues would be discovered. Passports, wallets, and photos, all belonging to the Solomon family, were found haphazardly strewn about along the lonely freeway 15 miles away from where the Solomons lived. 
This finally was enough to convince police that they were possibly dealing with foul play. But that would have been that they would have been kidnapped and possibly murdered, and these belongings had been dumped out by the perpetrator. At around this time, the news of the disappearance was hitting headlines in major ways, fueling all sorts of rumors. There were rumors spreading that Saul had been involved with the Israeli mafia, that something from his past as an ex-commando in the Israeli army had come back to haunt him. Or in fact, maybe he was an Israeli intelligence agent or a drug dealer. The public was going nuts with all these theories and all these rumors spreading like wildfire. But still, police were mostly interested in one man and one man only. The last person to speak the Solomons, Mr. Harvey Raider. And so the phone call to her friend was an indication that he may very well have been the last person to see Elaine alive as well. Now, Mr. Raider himself was a British national who owned a car dealership in Reseda, California, a business which Saul Solomon had actually invested $20,000 of his own money into. And he also happened to have a rather robust criminal record Greasy. in his back pocket. How much, how much is $20,000 in 1982 money? I don't know. 1982, uh, $20,000 would have been about $54,896.79. Ah. <laughs> so there's like a 30000 difference, you know. Yeah, that's 79 cents. That folks, is the link we go to to get you the details. Yeah, yeah. Inflation. It turns out Raider had been convicted of more than a dozen crimes back in England. He'd been to prison several times and had even been involved in an armed robbery and also an elaborate insurance fraud scheme involving setting fire to a home of the Saudi sheikh Mohammed al-Fasi, for which he had avoided jail time by ratting out his associates. What a bastard. Snitches get stitches. <laughs> <laughs> but still, that wasn't enough evidence that he had raised an entire family. So police went on about questioning him and feeling out the situation. But things were immediately suspicious when authorities arrived to find Saul's missing Mercedes sitting in the garage at Raider's car dealership back in Reseda. So police were very interested now to hear an explanation from Raider. So according to Harvey Raider, the night that he had met Saul, they had gone to a car auction in Saul's van. But after the auction, Saul had asked him to take him to a local Israeli restaurant. Raider dropped him off there, but then took the van back to the Solomon home, where he got the keys to the Mercedes from Elaine, and then a plan to take it back to his own car shop for repairs. He admittedly, he admittedly denied having anything to do with the disappearances, and even told police that Saul was a gunrunner selling illegal Uzis, revolvers, and automatic handguns. There were some discrepancies, though, in the version of events that sent up some red flags to the police. Because for one, during some investigative work, they found the restaurant that Saul allegedly had been dropped off at was closed the night of the disappearance. And there'd also been the fact that although they had left the Solomon house at 6 p.m., the car auction in question had actually ended an hour earlier at 5. And then Raider's story began to get some holes poked in it, because at first, 
<clears throat> because at first he said Elaine had handed him the keys after hanging up the phone, but later, when telling the story again, he told police he fished the keys out of the mailbox. But still, for whatever reason, in 1982, this was not enough evidence to hold Raider, and at the time, he was not brought in for further questioning. The case hit a dead end, with no new leads or suspects, until Raider popped up on the radar on October 1983, when police were contacted by Raider's cousin, a man named Ashley Pauley, who had a very curious story to tell police. According to Pauley, he had actually seen Raider and some Italian accomplices shoot Saul and the entire family on October 12, 1982, and had then helped the Italian accomplices bury the bodies out in the middle of the desert. Apparently, Saul had been killed during a heated financial dispute about his investment in the Reseda car business, and the family members were taken out of the equation simply to keep them quiet. Pauly also said that Raider was responsible for the vanishings of a British couple back in England named Peter and Joanne Davis, who had gone missing on March 17, 1982. Pauly even led police out to the location where he said the bodies were buried, but unfortunately, they found nothing. One investigator would go on to say, We went out to the desert area, and he was trying to show us different areas where he thought the bodies were buried, but nothing worked out. He was lying, or he didn't want us to find anything, the bodies, because he thought we would never find them, and if nobody could find them, then nobody could ever be prosecuted. So Pauly went on to tell police that he was willing to testify against Raider in exchange for immunity, but this didn't go through when he failed four polygraph tests. Wow, buddy. Police dropped him as a witness, and he headed back to England. But armed with this potential groundbreaking lead, they nevertheless pursued Radar, Raider in a, in a major way. Raider was later arrested and charged with the murders of the Solomon family, just as he was dealing with a charge of passport fraud, but the trial would not go smoothly. Not only was all the evidence against Raider circumstantial, but there were several witnesses who claimed to have seen Saul in California after the family had disappeared. His cousin Polly would be called later on to testify after all, but at this point, he refused to testify against Raider. The prosecution had nothing to go on. The bodies themselves could never be found despite intensive searches of the desert area that Polly had told them about, even digging under Raider's car dealership. There was still no concrete evidence to link Raider to any crime involving the family. Unfortunately, in the end, after two mistrials, he was ultimately acquitted to walk away a free man. Nearly everyone involved in the case was sure that he was guilty, labeling him a shady con man and a criminal, and there was outrage amongst friends, family, and the population. Friends and family of the Solomons, but the court had spoken. To this day, unfortunately, the Solomons' remains have never been found, and the family themselves remain missing. No trace has been found in spite of repeated searches, and there are no new leads to this day or tips despite efforts of the friends and family to use private investigators to dig up more information. The case is completely cold and will likely remain that way until there's some new breakthrough, but for now, a whole family simply vanished off the face of the earth. 
So what exactly happened here? Were they victims of foul play? And if so, who was responsible? Who was Raider, as many think? Or was something else going on here? How could they completely vanish without a trace? It's spooky that a whole family could disappear like this, and it remains chillingly unexplained in a case that may haunt us forever. And that, folks, was written by Brent Swancer. We've got to give props to Brent. And I'm assuming there's probably, you know, one drop in a bucket of tales of people disappearing, so. Yeah, that shit's weird. But, I mean, people go missing, man, and, like, some people just want to be not be found. Yeah, very true, very true. And, I mean, the 1980s in California, you're dealing Jeez. with all sorts of shady folks, man. Yep. You know, you think your dad's a car salesman, and in reality he's a gun runner, a drug runner. Maybe he works for a carnival, who knows, man. Yeah. Alrighty, folks. Well, that's all we got for tonight. Hopefully it tides you over until next week. I'm not going to say what it's going to be because I feel like if I say it's going to be Cryptid Encounters, it's going to jinx us, so I'm not going to say it. But what I will say is if you have Hulu, you need to do yourself a favor and watch the new documentary called Sasquatch. Oh, my God. I'm in episode two, and that's a fucking wild ride, man. It is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We won't spoil anything. But basically, it's like watching Hunting Bigfoot or Finding Bigfoot and then Murder on High Mountain. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they, they released this documentary on 420 for a reason, but uh, it's a funky ride, man, for sure. For sure. Uh, Steve, I think um, we're going to finish episode three probably tomorrow. But on your next day off, I'll have you pop over and we can watch it together because it's only going to be like a maybe two hour long documentary so far. I'm not sure if there's more episodes than three, but so far there's three episodes. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah, yeah. So come over, man, and have a little lunch and check it out. Lunch. And speaking of afternoon dates, uh, we got a fun little project. We're lining up with our buddy Isaac. Stay tuned for that. Um, we're also going to be uh, having a little shindiggery on the 8th to celebrate our upcoming five-year anniversary. So we might be doing a little live broadcast on Saturday the 8th to celebrate our fifth year of being the Pixelated Paranormal Podcast and lots of other fun stuff coming up. But for now, Steve, where can folks find us? Check us out on Instagram at PXL Paranormal. Also on Facebook, Pixelated Paranormal Podcast. Share the posts. It's very important because then it gets us more exposure to people on your friends list. You know what I mean? And then on Instagram, do the likes, all that stuff like that, you know. We like to talk to people on there. Yeah. We always respond to people on there. Yep. Hell yeah, for sure. Uh, shirts are still coming. I'll be checking in with my uh, neighbor this weekend, so we'll get pre-orders up for that here pretty quick. Get that going. Yeah, tell your friends, tell your family, tell your mom, tell your grandma, tell your grandpa. Tell your friends all about us. That way they tune in and they get some of that sweet, sweet, pixelated paranormal goodness. Check out our side show, 13 Nightmares. We just put out a new episode not too long ago about Scream. We are currently cooking up the new doc for our next movie deep dive. Preston, what do you got for us? Well, speaking of sharing with all your friends, I got a story about that. So today, <laughs> my cousin from Arizona called, and I, you know, missed the phone call, and I called him back, and he's like, "Oh well, you know, it wasn't nothing important. It's uh, you know, our, my gardener." He's into that freaky shit, you know, the rabbit hole conspiracy. And I said, <laughs> hey, I, I got a podcast for you to listen to. 
And sure as shit, Kenny Pooh pulled through, and we have another subscriber on YouTube. Uh, you know the the gardener. So uh, sweet. Yeah, Kenny Pooh's gardener. What's up, buddy? Yeah. So uh, check us out on YouTube. Like, subscribe, share, and then when you get done doing all that. Head over to BigDobsBeardBomb.com and use promo code PXLPARA for 20% off your order. And check you out some scents like Dundee Cedar Bay Rum Sweet Tobacco Fresh Centrus Mitt Classic. You can't go wrong with Dobbs. You won't go missing with a little bit of Dobbs in your beard. Mm-hmm. Now, are you still putting the new episodes on YouTube? Do we have a backlog we got to get on there? Uh, you know, we're up to uh, episode 171, so, uh, you know, we got about uh, 10 or 15 I got to get caught up on, but uh Wait, whoa, like, so you've got the entire the entire library is on there now, up up to 171? Except for the ones that wouldn't upload. Um, there was, like, a, a couple episodes that glitched, but, uh, yeah, we're pretty much all on there. Damn, I didn't realize you had that many on there, dude. Look oh, at yeah. you working hard. God damn, yeah. there's over 100 on there? That's insane. Fuck, that's pretty nuts, man. Hell yeah. I need to go through and read some of the comments, because there's been some pretty nice comments on there I'd like to shout out, maybe on next episode, too. So, Yeah. Cool. All right. If you're in the Wichita area, please stop by and see our good friend Leslie and the gang over at CD Trade Post. Stop in, say what's up. Tell them Pixelated Paranormal sent you in there. Probably won't get you a damn thing, but it feels good. And also, get you if you're a, in the Wichita get you a high area, five from Leslie. It might just get you high five during the times of COVID. It might be an air five or a thumbs up, but uh, who knows? Or an elbow bump. Roll the dice. <laughs> yeah, give me a little might elbow. Spit on you. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> That's true. <No. laughs> what she might do is she might give you an old spray of the sage spray. The sage spray, spray. yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, oh, awesome. good stuff. Yeah, and then if you're uh, looking for a bite to eat in the Wichita area, stop by if you ever see the paranormal egg experience food truck do yourself a favor pop in there get yourself a bigfoot burrito yeah. a nessie get you some squash tots oh uh, maybe mm. take your shoes off before you eat those because they will make your yeah. toes curl guaranteed they love us by Delicious. the way i went in there last wednesday or last wednesday last weekend at the record swap they had their truck up outside the aok pawn shop and uh i was not expecting for them to be there and i pulled up and i was like oh yeah it's going down and uh <laughs> went up there and uh said hi and and told them who i was again and they were like oh yeah and then they mentioned shayla shayla and the bigfoot thing and I thought that was cool and then, and then that was uh, awesome so man. i ordered, yeah. ordered my food and i was waiting for there and then they told they're, they're like oh yeah the next time the next time you and your buddies come in uh breakfast is on us and i was like oh that's so nice you don't have to do that and they're like no we 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 really appreciate you guys so that was really nice oh that's awesome hell yeah yeah i need to reach out to them and see if um there's a good time for the three of us to come out there and uh, i'd like to report uh record you know a spot for them play on the show and uh see if they've got any stories themselves because there's got to be a good damn reason why you're going to name a food truck the paranormal experience you know I want to know why the truth is out there and I want to figure out yeah. what it is over a Bigfoot burrito. Yeah, ne- yeah, I got the Bigfoot burrito again ne- next time. I'm going to switch it up. I'm going to I'm going to get them loaded squatch tots. But mm, I'm going to get loaded yeah, squatch tots, it. extra squatch tots. Let's go. <laughs> They're so good. 
because life is short, so yeah, why would they're like you? little they're like uh, little deep fri- deep fried potato balls, but the potato balls are cooked with egg and like some kind of seasoning. And cheese and it's yeah, oh. fucking amazing. <laughs> oh, yeah, it is. Uh, we went to the farmers market. So there, there's a, a gentleman who wears a Bigfoot, a very nice, very uh, you know high quality Bigfoot costume. Uh, that's been going out promoting with them at events. And my wife's last day um, teaching cosmetology was last week. And unbeknownst to her, um, one of her friends uh, ran into old Bigfoot at the farmer's market and uh, set it up to where basically on Shayla's last day, um, (laughs) in the middle of class, Bigfoot basically just walked in. And my wife got so excited. I, I don't know if she fully cried, but I know watching the video, I know she teared up. And uh, it was just the freaking coolest thing in the world, man. Um, for this guy just to kind of drop everything and just show up, you know, uh, it's phenomenal. So, yeah, the food truck, they're great people. Um, very inviting. The food is delicious. And uh, mm-hmm. I might suggest getting yourself a Chalupa Cabra and then pouring their sweet Thai chili sauce on that. And then you can thank me later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. All right, yeah, I gotta get to bed because I'm. On, I want. I want to dream of this food. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. All right. With that, I'd love to say cheers to the weird shit in the world and to those of us that love to talk about it. And stay spooky and stay on the paranormal highway. The cast that pixelated paranormal would like to thank you for listening to this week's episode. Pixelated paranormal is here to tell you tales of the fantastical, the strange, the unknown. Tales that will move you a little further down the paranormal highway. If you'd like to share your own listener story, we would love to hear it. Email us at pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. Again, that's pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. We'd really love to hear from you. Again, thanks for listening to this week's episode of Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and the strange.